There's a number of things to look at. We're going to read through verse 21 today, from Matthew 12 to 1 to 21. And what I want us to consider, maybe have in our minds and our hearts as we begin reading this, is that Matthew is unveiling a slow march toward a sacrificial death. So we've seen a birth, we've seen a preparation for ministry, we've seen a splash of miracles, we've seen powerful teaching, authoritative teaching, the sending of the apostles, the hard-heartedness, the blindness of many who reject Jesus. And now we are beginning to see, this is what Matthew's going to start to show us here, the seeds are being planted for a great tension that will lead ultimately to Jesus, the innocent one, being sacrificed, murdered brutally, and absorbing the wrath of God. That is where this is going. So those of you, if, uh, if the cross, if the, if the crucifixion is a spoiler for you, I'm sorry. That's where the end of this book is going. And we're going to start to see these seeds being planted now as Jesus interacts with and takes his rightful place in the world the way that the, those who were in authority, who were in charge of the religious establishment, began to push back. So this is the first verse of Matthew 12. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat it. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And the man stretched, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench." Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray together for a moment. God, thank you for your word. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear it. 
We pray that our hearts would be softened. We have areas of hardness of heart, stubbornness, delusion. So we ask, Holy Spirit, make Yourself evident, known by the conviction of our minds and hearts that we would see sin and righteousness properly. I ask God that I could be of encouragement, that my words would bring more light, not more fog, to this gift that is Scripture. We pray that we would not be like those who see our reflection and go away and forget what we look like, not like those who hear the Word but do not do it and so delude ourselves. We ask for attentiveness, spirit-wrought attentiveness as we consider these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Pharisees and those who interact with Jesus often demonstrate a sort of persistent and very confusing ability to always miss the point. They are constantly busy, but never producing, constantly moving, but never going anywhere, anxious and striving of heart, never finding a place to settle. There is an evident and ongoing exercise in missing the most important things by trying so hard to highlight the important things. And it's going to be this tension, this inability of the Pharisees to see what is truly important that Jesus begins to press into and will ultimately plant the seeds that will grow up and sprout and fruit into an outright mutiny that leads to his death. In order to get through this and to think about this conflict as it begins, to understand it, to get to the, the heart of the tension behind this text, I want to explain a few things. I'm going to use a few different coat hangers, places to hang some thoughts. They're all going to start with C. And my hope is that the end of this section, as we look through the, these 21 verses of Matthew 12, that we understand more fully what was the problem, what was the tension caused in the religious world of this day, and then perhaps reflect on what are some of our temptations in the same direction. So these are the three areas we're going to hang some thoughts on. The first is to explain the context. What I mean by context is that this was written to a mainly Jewish audience, and Jesus is offending and interacting with Jewish leaders. So are there some things that we don't understand fully about their world and what was important? And by knowing more, we may understand their offense. So context. Second, we're going to look at the conflict itself. How does Jesus step in, in fact, even toward this misunderstanding that leads to further, further tension with the Pharisees. We want to look at the conflict itself. We're going to do some conflict examining, some resolution, sort of an autopsy on this particular section of fighting. And then finally, I'm going to point out what I believe Jesus points out, which would be the solving. How do we marry his position that brings tension with the context that was so valued by this Jewish community? I think we're going to look at the crux of the matter. What he's going to point out is that there's a center to all these things, and if you miss the center, then everything falls apart. 
So first, I want to consider the context of this disagreement. You see, the key word here at the beginning as we start is not that Jesus went, not that he's going around, not that someone is hungry, not that he has disciples, but that he is going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. That's the key phrase that Matthew would introduce, and it's supposed to set a mood. And overall, I would say that these two areas, understanding Sabbath and understanding the temple, are going to be absolutely key, absolutely vital for understanding how we get at conflict. Here's my guess. My guess is that for many of us, the concept of Sabbath and temple don't impact our daily lives very often. My guess is that you probably know something about a Sabbath, but it was likely from something to avoid or some terror story of religious generations previous to us that were very persnickety about what you did on a Sunday. But the idea of Sabbath is probably not something that is very fresh in your mind, nor would you understand probably, or I would understand exactly what it meant to this group of people at this particular time. So I want to describe Sabbath, and I also want to describe temple. The idea that there was not only sacred spaces and places, but profoundly important sacred spaces. And to denigrate or to speak blasphemous words about the temple were fighting words. So I want to make sure we understand what would have been the response to Jesus going about and his disciples doing things on a Sabbath. We need to consider, well, what is Sabbath? The first thing to note is that the Pharisees and those who followed the Pharisees, who were God-fearing, were not wrong to believe that a Sabbath was a big deal. Sabbath was a lawful practice instituted by God himself in Exodus 19 and 20. It was the fourth commandment. Remember, God comes up with 10. That's what he etches in when Moses springs down from the mountainside. And the fourth commandment is clear, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. So there is a lawful practice undergirding the Sabbath that was right. In fact, God himself, we're told, he didn't just come up with this command as a good idea on the fly. It was demonstrated from the very beginning, the way that God worked in the world. He created all things, according to Exodus when it gives this law, he created all things in six days of activity, bringing everything from nothing, and then he rested. Therefore, it's a creation ordinance. It's founded directly and ensourced in the earliest moments of creation and its existence. The rhythm of working and then stopping was built in to human life, into creation life itself. So it's important. They're not wrong. But here's where things go sideways. It turns out that there is not a ton of detail when it comes to defining, well, what do these words mean and how is this going to look in practice? You may know this, but defining of terms is majorly important. Define the terms, win the worldview. So what the Pharisees began to do over the course of time is try to work things out like this. So what is rest anyway? We're supposed to work for six days and then rest for one, but really what is rest? And now insert 
Hundreds and hundreds of years of very smart people trying to figure out and carefully define what is rest and what is not rest. More than that, actually, if we work for six days, what are we trying to avoid? So what is work anyway? And because of the seriousness of this command, what happened is is that people were fearful. When you inject a lack of specificity, a need for wisdom, sometimes what's easier than wisdom is a set of rules. And when there's a lack of specificity, you inject that with a desire to perform and a fear of not performing. And what ends up happening around laws is that you begin to create laws that protect the laws, right? So if I told you there's a radioactive isotope in the middle of this aisle right here, it's somewhere around there. You might say to yourself, well, we need a bigger circle. We need to put a fence and a wall around that. And then someone else would come along and say, actually, I don't know. What if you got over that wall? You're too close still. And the next person says, yeah, I'm kind of afraid too. Why don't we make an additional wall that will protect us from the wall? And then someone else comes in and says, you know what? Actually, I've seen people get really close to getting over that first wall. I think we need a wall for the wall that protects the wall because you know how people are. And eventually you have a history of religious practice that creates an increasing and growing captive, it's a, I'm going to say captivating, but in the wrong way, capturing circle of fences, fences that protect fences that protect fences. I saw that there's a book still used and practiced by Orthodox Jews today, God-fearing people trying to outline exactly how to live a Sabbath properly. And just on the topic of work, defining what to avoid, there are 39 listed types of work that should be avoided. All the way down to the point where they say things like lifting and carrying should be separate categories. And if you're thinking about carrying, there are even subcategories under carrying. There are things that are lawful in private, but not lawful in public. So you can read paragraphs about how to not or to carry something in public so as not to give the perception that you have gone over one of the fences that protects the next fence, that protects the fence, that protects the thing that is bad. Now I say all this knowing full well that for many of us, over-protecting the Sabbath is not our issue. Overprotecting something, especially related to rest, is not our issue. Most of us will not be accused of doing too much on the Sabbath. In fact, I would say that our issue may be in the opposite ditch, and that is, is that we have been so careful and so freed by Jesus to not want the series of fences that we forget that there may be a healthy, God-ordained rhythm of life in the middle of it. Many of us, as an aside, and I understand the irony, I do not want to take a passage from Matthew 12 of Jesus pressing against an over-realized Sabbath and say, actually, for us, I'd like to realize it again, all right? So what you're about to hear may feel to you like, what in the world? The Pharisees, and then this guy, and then what am I supposed to make of this? Let me just offer a few observations. It is possible to be proud of your performance in avoidance of breaking the rules, It is also possible to be proud of your freedom leading to licentiousness in response to what is a rule anyway, right? And it's not even a rule when it comes from God, it's for our good. And so maybe I would say, for us, it would be okay to ask questions like this. Do I know how to rest? 
Do I work as though I am God? Are there any moments or places where I would actually pause? And I think it's an interesting question to ask because for many of us who have totally thrown off, and I believe this is justified in many ways, the New Testament, light of Christ, does say that you can esteem one day just like another. That's not the point. The point would be, is there something good in the command of God? And what's amazing to me is that so many of us, this is such a foreign concept. This is why I have to bring up the context. It's such a foreign concept that we have no practice of this, and yet at the same time, I'll give you a demonstration. It's very possible to do something like this. Sabbath, what are you talking about? What are you, some kind of legalist freak? What are you, are you an Old Testament person or something? Don't you know we have freedom? Sabbath, that's crazy. Anyway, I am exhausted. I am so busy. I just, you would not believe, I just, my job is so stressful, I can't get away from it. It's crazy. Hold on. I got like 17 dings going on here, reminding me of all the work that's coming my way. Hey, yeah, it's okay. So, okay, I set that aside for a second. How do you ever find time to pray? You're reading the Bible? Are you serious? I can't even get up in the morning and barely microwave a Pop-Tart to get to work. Like I can't, I'm just so full of life. And do you see how there might be a something in here? Okay, so let's go home. I, uh, I just reinstituted the Sabbath. Everybody happy? We're set. Of course, that's not the point. But the point is to set a context like this. When Matthew introduces this topic and he says, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and then describes what happens with the Pharisees watching, this was supposed to bring for a Jewish audience who's reading it and for those who are in charge of this religious practice, they begin to get a little bit tense. <gasps> what's happening? Perhaps for me, I remember being a a young boy, maybe seven or eight years old, and we would go to visit a great aunt aunt and uncle who had been very successful. They had a a wonderfully beautiful home, the kind of thing you could picture from like Anne of Green Gables or something, just rolling fields and everything manicured. And inside of their home, they had one of these rooms that many people have in their homes, which is a room that is so important that it's never used. It is so pristinely decorated that it is not able to be inhabited. And I remember as a young child getting scolded and warned by my mom on the way to this home, knowing full well that that room beyond the pristine, glistening glass windows of the French doors was not to be entered by children. And in order to make sure that this was not the case, my great aunt would often, I swear, avoid conversation or anything else important to take up the task of a sentry standing at the door with a furrowed brow to make sure that no child dare even look into her room. I was mortified and terrified. And I want you to imagine, this is the context, the importance of this room. I had been taught this. I lived this. I knew the rules. When we went there, I did not go there. My mom would have shamed me over the thing. My great aunt would have laser-eyed murdered me if I went into the place. And now I want you to imagine, this is the sort of scenario. I want you to imagine I bring my friend from baseball, my friend Bob, or whoever it is, And we're playing outside with the dogs in baseball. And then he needs something to drink. And so he takes a shortcut. And I'm a few steps behind him because I was playing with the dog. And I look up. And right when I get in, it's too late. He begins to open the French glass doors with muddied feet. And my aunt is standing there looking guard. 
What takes place in my soul at that particular minute is a collective gasp and a no. Because you were about to commit a transgression, something that everyone knew was massively important. We do not live in this context because many of us do not have hard and fast Sabbath rules. Thank God for the freedom that we have in Christ, of course. But perhaps we've gone so far that we don't even understand this. The reality is that a Jewish reader at this particular time would have been, the scene would have been set. Matthew says, so get this, Jesus with his disciples, they're going through the grain field. Okay, uh uh-huh. Crowds are following them, including the Pharisees. Oh, wow. The Pharisees are gathering and, and following them, which maybe just as an aside, if you just want to be followed and be famous, it doesn't always mean good things are happening. The Pharisees are following in order to undermine Jesus. So they're setting the scene, okay? So Jesus is there, and it's the Sabbath? Wow, okay. And then the disciples, they're hungry, and Jesus is hungry, so they grab the grain. And that is akin to my friend Bob bursting through the French doors. And the readers would have said, what? And they would have anticipated a response from the Pharisees the same way my great-aunt would have responded with a furrowed brow and laser eyes of death. And so Matthew ups attention. Verse 2, the Pharisees saw it. They said to him, "Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity here. Do you see what your disciples are doing? In other words, do you want us to punish them or will you take care of it yourself? And Jesus has an interesting response, which we're going to see in a moment from the, as the conflict goes up. For now, I want you to note that we've been removed from the context, but for them, this was a moment of tension. Similarly, we need to understand the temple. The temple was a promised place of God's presence all through the Old Testament. The one thing Israel had going for it is that they had God. In fact, I would say that's the only thing that anyone ever has going for them. The gospel could be summarized in this promise and this fulfillment. I will be your God and you will be my people. We have nothing else. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. If you want the cliff notes, that's the story of the Bible. God promises those who would be his own, I will be your God, you'll be my people. I'll be with you, you'll be present. So Israel, all it had going for it was the promise of God's presence. In the wilderness, they tabernacled a temporary tent, but God's presence dwelt there, and it gave them confidence. It gave them the idea that they could be forgiven, that God loved them, that they were near to Him. It was a place of holiness. It was, by all definitions of the word, not only sacrosanct, but the very source of all things sacrosanct. In this culture, there was a temple set up. Not the first temple. You may be thinking from Sunday school. You remember you're having felt board flashbacks. You remember Solomon building an amazing temple with all the designs. Well, that temple had been destroyed somewhere around 540 B.C. by the Babylonians. And sometime between 540, 535-ish, 536 B.C. And this time of Jesus, a second temple had been set up. It was not as ornate. It was smaller. It was not as beautiful. It said that some people were embarrassed. In fact, it was a source of insecurity for Israel. That their promised temple, this place of God's dwelling, was in somewhat of a disrepair. It had, in recent times, taken on more beauty because Herod the king was a builder. He was an architect of sorts. He loved to put his name name on things. If you want 
a contemporary example of Herod, I would say that if Herod was king here now, all of the renovations happening to football stadiums around the world, we would absolutely buy tickets for Herod Campbell Stadium. That's the way that this would work. He put his name on everything. He'd said, what do you guys want? What do you need? You need like a rotating 17th floor suite overviewing, you know, whatever else it is. I'll build it, put my name on it. It'll make me great. So the second temple not only was smaller, not as beautiful, and sort of an insecurity, because this was the place where God dwelt, Israel's only hope, but it had been ordained and sort of tainted now by this secular kingdom, and it was called Herod's Temple. Yet it was still a place of holiness. And the Pharisees were the guardians and champions of these things, champions and guardians of the law, and champions and guardians of the place that God dwells. They were not throwaways. They had no sense or assurance that God was with or abiding amongst or for them if they did not have a temple. And it's these two bits of context now that introduce the conflict. The first one we already saw, the Sabbath is transgressed. And everyone would have said, they pulled grain and the Pharisees pressed Jesus. And now he says to them in verse 3, not only am I not going to play your games, but I'm going to ratchet up the tension. The response to them is not, oh, you're right, my bad. I'm going to pick one of them, you know, just like uh, Judas. He's just been so hungry lately. You know, we told him it's showing a little bit, but he just keeps eating. And so I'm so sorry. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to play that game. In fact, he ratchets things up and he brings up the story of David. He says, have you not read, which is one of the, one of the most insulting things you could say to a Pharisee. He says it not once, but twice. Verse five again, have you not read in the law? First, have you not read the history concerning David and the, his kingship? But then second, have you not read in the law? And then later in verse 7, he's going to say, if you had known what this means. So Jesus presses into conflict. It's telling an expert that they are a mere novice. He's calling out in public those who were the supposed geniuses. Of course they had read. But Jesus says, you might need to reread. Of course they had understood or seen the law, but Jesus says, I don't know if you really get it. And he brings up this instance of David on the run. Remember in 1 Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run for the first time. He knows for sure his life is in danger. He can't go back to the palace. Saul is bloodthirsty. He had arranged with his friend Jonathan to have this sort of signal. Remember, he's going to shoot the... um, the bow and arrows, and he says, shoot it really, really far if I'm in danger and I need to leave, and so that's what takes place. And David is legitimately an outlaw, a fugitive. He's on the run. He has fear of showing his face. He has no supplies. And so he runs in to the holy place and talks with Abimelech, who's a priest, and he says, I am starving. My men are starving. Please give us some food. The only thing that's available is what's called the showbread. It's the bread of God's presence. This was to be guarded and protected by the priests. It was to be kept fresh. And every time a new bit of bread needed to be kept fresh, the old old bread would be eaten, but only as a privilege and an honor for the priests. It was a show that they guarded and were able to mediate the presence of God. 
They were a mediator between the normal people and the God of the universe, and it was their special privilege alone. In fact, it was forbidden and against the law of God for anyone else to handle, let alone to eat, this bread of the presence. And what takes place in this story is that the priest has a decision to make. He can offer to David who comes, who's the anointed king, he can offer to David in the midst of his need the law. He could say, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, David. I see that you're hungry and your men are hungry, but you see so clearly here in section 43, line B, that we just cannot, there's nothing we can do. He has an option to offer him this law or to offer him mercy. And the story, which they should have known well, is that they were offered mercy. He goes on and he says, have you not read actually how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, you know who works on the Sabbath now that I think about it? The priests. But they are guiltless. And in one fell swoop, the conflict arises because Jesus has done two things. One, he has used a demonstration from King David to describe what he was owed. He has claimed equality. Later, I would even say greater than King David and his role. And more than that, he has stated that those who follow Jesus and are connected to him have a priestly vocation that is on par with those who work on the Sabbath and are guiltless. Jesus has claimed in one bit of tension to be king and ruler over the laws themselves and that if you are with him, you have a higher standing than the Pharisees who claim to understand these things so well. And this drove them insane. A second bit of conflict about what is lawful or not on the Sabbath. They go and they find in the synagogue a man with a withered hand. I love this picture because it's the Pharisees that bring it up to Jesus. They're the one that brings it. They know what's going to happen. They go into the synagogue. They see a man there with a withered hand. They look at each other and they say, guess what he's going to do? What do you think? So they bring it up. Jesus walks in. They point him out. They say, oh, is it going to be okay for you to heal on the Sabbath too? Jesus brings up their potential hypocrisy, points out, the failure of mercy in their thinking. It says, is a man worth more than a sheep? Because the sheep you save on the Sabbath, right? And then he definitively tells them it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And I like to think of a maybe a, a bit of a stretch of time between the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. Remember the Pharisees, the public place, they're in the synagogue. There's a man there who needs healing. Jesus walks in, his disciples, they've already had conflict about the grain. The Pharisees approach him, trying to accuse him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus gives a couple instructions, and then he says definitively, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And then I like to think there's a bit of a silence, sort of an okay corral moment. The tumbleweed goes through. If you're just in the Sabbath, or if you're in the synagogue that day just looking for some lessons, you're like, whoa. Looking back and forth, looking to the guy with the withered hand, looking at Jesus, looking at the withered hand, looking at the Pharisees. And then Jesus says, hold out your hands. And without 
any show or anything. He holds up his hands and it demonstrated before all of them. And I imagine Jesus just looking at the withered man and then back staring straight through the Pharisees. Perfect healing and restoration. Jesus claiming once again that he is Lord of these rules of the Sabbath. That the point of these laws was to press further toward mercy and healing and restoration. And that it was actually the Pharisees who thought they were doing God's bidding who were keeping people in bondage and maimed. And so in response to this very public shaming, it just says in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Matthew pulls forth yet another fulfillment passage from Isaiah and says that Jesus is determined from this point forward to absorb their conspiring, not to speak against it, because he knows his purpose. His purpose is to exalt by going low, not to make others low so that he would be more exalted. He is confident in his purpose. He tells them, don't go tell anyone anything. They'll conspire against me, and it's fine because I am in the right. So all of this leads to what I believe Jesus would say is the crux of the matter. Crux is a fantastic word, points back to as it's sourcing and the idea of the crucifixion itself. What is the center of the thing? Well, I think Jesus says it in verses 6, 7, and 8. Rapid fire. He tells the Pharisees what their problem is and what they should see in him. He says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. This is fighting words. They might say back to him, are you to tell us that something better than the place that God dwells and assures us of forgiveness of sins is here? And rather than shrinking back, Jesus would have said, yeah, you're just about getting it right. I don't know if you remember my name. It was given to me, but it's Emmanuel, God with us. I am an embodiment of the holy place. I am a mediator between God and men. I am the assurance that you can be forgiven of your sins. In other words, if you have loved and cherished the temple, which you ought to in some way, don't miss what the temple points to, which is me, the embodiment of the presence of God. He then says, then says to them in verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. They may say to him, are you trying to say that all the laws and the things concerning sacrifice are less important than the ideas of grace and mercy and that all these laws and rules and sacrifice are actually supposed to point us to the mercy of God, not take our performance onto our own merits. I believe Jesus would have said, yeah, 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 I think you're starting to get it. You've missed it if you've missed that. And finally, he claims for himself in verse 8, the Son of Man, this great title given over the Messiah who would come. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he says, you keep trying to protect people and even me now from breaking this rule. I made the rule. The rule's for me. He's later going to say that laws have been given for Man, not man for laws. And they would say to him, 
are you claiming to be greater than the lawgiver? To have an interpretation that's deeper to get to the heart of these things that we follow? And Jesus would have said, yes, I think you're just starting to get it. That there is a law unto himself that is deeper than what had been given. You see, sometimes being so busy over things can keep us from remembering the point of the busyness in the beginning. Have you ever gone back into your house to do something and you're organizing and you're doing sort of stuff and then you find yourself caught in the middle of the room and you say to yourself, what, what did I come in here for? What, 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 was I, what, what am I doing? Where am I? When I was a kid in high school, I had to drive to my high school from the country and it meant I had to go on a gravel road a mile up, take over the overpass, get on the interstate. I'd have to drive seven miles on the interstate and then I would take a left on Old Highway 81 and then I would drive three miles in and then I'd have to get off on Old Mill Road and then I'd have to go down for another couple miles and through all these stoplights. I'd have to navigate a couple neighborhoods, park in a sort of a um, difficult spot to park with parallel parking and then finally walk a block and a half to get into my high school. And there were times walking into 7.30 a.m., math class, calculus class, that I would sort of wake up and have this fear come over me and say to myself, I don't remember any of the last 25 minutes. Am I here? Did I, get here? Did I drive myself here? Did anyone see my car? Is it parked outside? Am I there? I had gone through the motions, completely lost myself in the things that I was doing. And I believe what Jesus says to those who are listening is, you have a fear of God. This is a good thing, but you're so busy. You've become so enamored by the signs that you've missed what they point to. I believe that for many of us, we fall victim to the same temptation. We know that we should have good habits. We know that there are things that we should do. They are good in themselves, much like the concept of Sabbath itself. They are good in themselves, but we so often substitute being led by the Spirit and remembering the newness of the thing that we're doing that we miss the whole point. We become so busy in striving that like the Pharisees, we're exhausted by trying to uphold rest. Jesus, the greater and better King, coming in the line of David to rule and reign rightly. Jesus and all of those who are in, bound up in Him come as a better mediator, a rightful and eternal priest, those who can reconcile the gap between the Creator and those who are His own. Jesus comes as the very dwelling place of God in the earth. The temple, the tabernacle, the place of forgiveness and sacrifice. Jesus, Lord of the laws themselves. And what He desires to point out in the blindness of the Pharisees is that they were so in love with the process of their performance religiously, that they had completely gutted all of their activity of its meaning. So perhaps a question for us could be something like this. What do I do often or used to do often 
that I have perhaps completely forgotten the point. Many times it's difficult to see this because it's still better to do the thing often than not to do the thing. It is better to pray than to not pray. But it is not great to mindlessly pray so that you can check a box to remember that you should have prayed. It is great to sing songs of praise and worthiness to God because He is worthy. It is far better to make those words that come from your soul a kind of aspiration and a prayer, a moment of awakening. Far better to have the Spirit wake us up like a man in the middle of a room saying, why was I here? What was I doing? A good question that something I maybe ask myself is, are there things in my life that are mere activity that have been robbed of meaning, especially the things that I say are most important? Have I lost the joy of the forgiveness of my sins? Have I become so cleaned up and precise at the way that I ought to live and speak that I become unwelcoming to those who don't have it together? Do I preach and uphold grace so fervently that I do it ungraciously? It is very, very tempting to control the practice of religion. It's just that over the course of time, it is dull, dead, and lifeless. So let's not be blinded like the Pharisees. Let's not be such overzealous, active do-gooders that we miss the goodness that is in Jesus Himself on our behalf. This is uh, an area, I believe, of subtlety and nuance. If you would have asked the Pharisees at the time, hey, are you going about a lot of activity but missing the point entirely? They would have said, no, what are you talking about? I think this could be one of those areas for us. Are there things that we just going about as activity, but you guys are totally missing the point? No, what are you talking about? We're Protestants. We're, we're, we're full of grace and truth. We preach the true gospel. We read the Bible. We sing the right songs. Let's ask the Spirit to search us. Let's pray.